I'm really excited for this episode. I love soul coughing. No, f*** you. Well. Oh, I get it. Because Mike Doty said, anytime someone says to me, I like soul coughing, I hear f*** you. Right, Will? What's Mike Doty? Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we move aside and let the man go through, let the man go through, and discuss our favorite albums, song by song. Roll call. Rich Bennell. Chris Willie Williams. Phil Maddox. And Amanda Rogers. Didn't I just talk to you three last week? Oh yeah, we should tell everybody. We fired everyone else. It's just us four now. They were dead weight. Yeah. No, that's not true. We would never. I think this is the first time we've had the same panel two episodes in a row. It, it had to happen eventually. Yeah. Anyway, now it is time to turn it over to this week's host, Will, who recently wrote a tell-all memoir about how much he hates all of us. I believe it was called The Book of Discord. <laughs> Something like. So what album do you have for us, Will, and why did you pick it? This week we'll be talking about Irresistible Bliss by Soul Coughing. I chose it because I think Soul Coughing is due for a critical reevaluation. Between their formation and one of the most acrimonious dissolutions in the history of rock, they produced three albums worth of engrossing arty tunes that drew on styles ranging from rock to funk to jazz to vaudeville. However, the 90s also produced a glut of other artists like Beck and Cake, whose approach to genre boundaries was essentially the grown-up version of a kid pushing all the colors of Play-Doh through the Fun Factory abattoir to see what comes out. Cake and Beck were clever as well as silly, and although they liked to roam stylistically, they could write accessible and ear-friendly music as well. On the other hand, Soul Coughing was far darker, and at times confusing. And although they scored a couple hits, their brainy, brawny approach to songwriting sounds as though it's specifically intended to keep the music-listening public at arm's length. And that's a compliment. No one else sounded like Soul Coughing, and although I could just as easily have chosen one of their other albums to cover here, my impression is that Irresistible Bliss is the one Soul Coughing Greenhorns are most likely to be at least a little familiar with. Yeah, you really could have thrown a dart and picked a good album with them. Yeah. So, Will, tell us a tale. How did you and Soul Coughing find each other? I first became aware of Soul Coughing in ninth grade. My friend Carl had made me a copy of the soundtrack to Tommy Boy. Now, I hope that you're listening to this podcast while your manservant stands by with smelling salts and laudanum, because you're likely to swoon when I gently break the news to you that the Tommy Boy soundtrack is maybe not an essential title for your record collection. <laughs> what? <gasps> I know. The one gem it contained was a peculiar song called Is Chicago Is Not Chicago, which lashes a scratchy, Talking Heads-inspired funk rock guitar to a rhythm section playing defiantly lockstep jazz, topped with mystifying samples and snippets of speak-sing lyrics.
Each element of the song pulled in a different direction, but rather than the song being irretrievably drawn and quartered, Is Chicago had a nervy tension that very much appealed to me. I went out and bought its source album, Soul Coughing's 1994 debut, Ruby Vroom, right away. And from the first listen, I vowed to purchase every new album the band would release. They released just two more before vituperatively imploding in 2000, so it turned out to be one of my easier vows. But believe it or not, my emotional connection to Soul Coughing has less to do with Tommy Boy than with Bev, my lovely goofball of a wife. Back in 2003, I ran a record review site on which I covered Smoaf and Smang, a solo live album by Soul Coughing frontman Mike Doty. I gave the album an A+, and somehow that came up in one of Bev's Google searches when she was trying to find more information about Doty. So she emailed me and asked if I knew how she could get a copy of the album, since it was already out of print. I absolutely did not just burn a copy for her in exchange for her making me a mixtape of some of her favorite songs. You would never do that. Scouts on her. In spite of the utter lack of copyright infringement, Bev and I kept chatting after that initial email, eventually falling in love, and I moved from Michigan to Maine to be with her. So Dodie will always have a special place in our hearts as the magnet that pulled us together. Aww. Bev, in fact, still has the label that I picked off my beer bottle and asked Dodie to sign for her. He called her Beth in the inscription, but I suppose it was loud in Detroit's Majestic Theater. <laughs> that is an absolutely lovely story, and I'm lovely, so well. glad you decided to share it. <laughs> so, Phil, how did you get into Soul Coughing? And it better be as romantic as that. <laughs> uh, it is not, but it does involve the Disclaimer Music Review Archive. <laughs> but you and Will aren't married, are you? Not to the best of my knowledge. Okay. Not once he saw the prenup. So I initially got, knew about Soul Coughing because I heard Super Bon Bon on the radio a ton back in like 1996. It was inescapable on alternative radio. And I liked it a lot, but I never checked them out. Move aside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. Move aside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. And then they kept on popping up every now and then. I bought the Spawn soundtrack, which contained the incredibly strange, a plane scraped its belly on a sooty yellow moon. (laughs) Here I come, 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 further inside. In all directions at one, 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 universal sign, sign, sign. Match to the finish, 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 finish. The quickness, incorporate, incorporate. And eventually, I just uh, was at a UCD store and I saw a copy of Irresistible Bliss, and I picked it up. And I never dove too deep into Soul Coughing's music because I liked this album, but it didn't, you know, really blow me away. And I had a lot of other things to listen to. So I picked it up. I have a couple Mike Doty solo albums, but I feel like I'm probably the newbiest person here with Soul Coughing since my knowledge of them is relatively skin deep. Well, not quite, because uh, Amanda, you're totally new to them, right? Yeah, you are absolutely not the newbiest person around here, Phil. That is me. Uh, <laughs> because the way I got into Soul Coughing was I didn't really. <laughs> I first heard about them from Dave Matthews. And by that, I mean when I was. 14, this would have been 1995 or 96, I wrote a fan letter to Dave Matthews' band. And I got a postcard back that had a very cool painting on the front. I really wish I could find it now, but I'm sure I don't have it anymore. And in the postcard, which was written by Dave Matthews, although not personally to me, I don't think, uh, he mentioned this new band called Soul Coughing that he had been listening to a lot. 
And I thought, well, that is a dumb name for a band. <laughs> and never actually did anything with that information because my seed, what little CD buying money I had at the time was going to Dave Matthews Band and the Moody Blues. Uh, and I, I, I definitely heard Super Bon Bon on the radio, but I didn't know that was them. I never connected those dots. So it wasn't until uh, Will informed me I was going to learn this album for our podcast that I started listening to them. Mike Doty hates the name Soul Coughing, too, but he hates literally everything about Soul Coughing. So. <laughs> Where does that name even come from? Are you planning to get into that, Will? He says now that it was uh, just two words that he liked to put together. But apparently at the time, he told everybody that it was slang for puking. <laughs> so he's he's backpedaled on that. So as for me, I really should have gotten into soul coughing a lot earlier. In fact, uh, Will didn't even send me a CDR of Irresistible Bliss. He sent me the actual physical like copy of the CD, the real CD. But uh, just for whatever reason, I didn't listen to it much. I'm sorry, Will. It's an off-putting cover. I don't blame you. Definitely, yeah. Uh, but my taste in music has always been in the general orbit of soul coughing, but I never really took the dive until now because... My parents' cable package briefly included the Canadian music station Much Music. Go Much Music! Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they used to air the music video for the song Circles pretty regularly, where Mike Doty takes a cue from Weezer and walks down a long corridor while his sweater slowly unravels. <laughs> Pull this thread as I walk away. I don't need to walk around in circles, walk around in circles, walk around in circles, walk around in mostly aware of soul coughing because they were roughly in the same New York nerd rock scene as they might be giants and their music crossed paths a few times uh, as we'll hear a few times in this episode. People mention them on the Usenet news group alt.music.tmbg all the time but I think I was always kind of hesitant to get into them because uh, Mike Doty makes a guest appearance on their song Mr. Excitement which is the worst song on their worst album Mint Car and here's a clip of it. Aww. <laughs> yes 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 yes. Rock on, my hubba, the beat is blubber being stingy on the pike, collect the one into the other, careen in tandem, the seat into the landum, the people in the picks they want to snarf and dig the clamdom. so bad. It's such a bad decision. Yeah, but despite that rough beginning, I've had a really good time belatedly getting into their music for this episode. Okay, Will, it's time. Tell us the fraught history of soul coughing and leave none of the sordid details out. What album is the song? 
It's on the soundtrack to the X-Files movie. Okay, because I'm like, they have three albums and I've heard all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know this one. So in the early 90s, Manhattan Club The Knitting Factory was the place to be if you wanted to be a pretentious person in New York. It was conceived in 1987 as an art gallery, but within a few years it was known primarily as a performance venue for underground bands, stand-up comics, poets, etc., with a focus on the experimental and avant-garde. Knitting Factory doorman and poet Mike Doty successfully talked his bosses into giving him a performance slot, and he assembled a band of guys he knew from the club. Before Soul Coughing came together, all four of its band members had independently performed in some project by unlistenable experimental artist John Zorn, who was a Knitting Factory fave. Doty's recruits were Yuval Gabay on drums, Sebastian Steinberg on enormous double bass, and Mark DeLiantoni on keyboard sampler. These three guys were roughly a decade older than Doty, and they were all proficient professionals with their instruments, which led to rifts between them and Doty from the start, as Doty's guitar playing and vocalizing were primitive to say the least. But what Doty may have lacked in technical ability compared with his bandmates, he made up in an aptitude for coaxing an endless supply of memorable hooks from a few simplistic templates as well as a peerless gift for stringing together syllabically invigorating nonsense lyrics like fossilized apostle and I comb it with a rake. Soul Coughing was armed with an extremely uncommercial bandolier containing rock, jazz, funk, poetry, and hip-hop, and yet they somehow scored a record deal with Slash Warner Brothers almost as soon as they came on the market. Their first album, Ruby Vroom, was as uncompromisingly artsy as anything to come out of the knitting factory. Produced by Los Lobos' longtime producer Chad Blake, the album was a viscous, funky sludge that was crammed start to finish with musical choices that no other musicians would imagine. The 5% Nation of Corduroy. The 5% Nation of Marlboro. The 5% Nation of Pay-Per-View. The 5% Nation of Nipple Clamps. The 5% Nation of Milton Bradley. The 5% Nation of Casio Tone. The 5% Nation of Casio Tone. Ruby Vroom didn't exactly set the charts on fire, but it did turn quite a few heads. That brings us to Irresistible Bliss, their sophomore album, whose title was almost certainly intended ironically, given the emotional toll it seems to have exacted upon everyone involved in its creation. When it came time to choose a producer, Doty unilaterally hired David Kahn, or Kane, I'm not sure, a producer who's worked with a head-spinning variety of artists, from New Order to Paul McCartney to The Bangles to, well, to Sublime and Sugar Ray. <laughs> Solkoffing's recording sessions with Khan took about a week and a half, and although Doty was pleased with the results, the rest of the band was less keen. Shortly later, the band booked three days of studio time to record the terrific Unmarked Helicopters, their naggingly foreboding contribution to the X-Files TV show soundtrack. Steve Fisk, keyboardist for the instrumental surf jangle band Pell-Mell, took the production reins for this session, and Unmarked Helicopters was completed in just half a day. Since they still had two and a half days of extra studio time to use, Daly Antoni, Gabay, and Steinberg expressed a desire to give Irresistible Bliss another pass with Fisk at the helm, even though the album was ostensibly already in the can. 
Doty says he thought the original version of the album was a masterpiece whose masterpieceness was lost in the re-recording and lengthy mixing process. Of the Steve Fisk sessions, only White Girl and Four Out of Five made it to the final album, with the production of How Many Cans credited to the band, and the rest to Kanye and Soulcoughing together. It's not clear to me what the various producers' and engineers' roles were in putting this album together, but Doty said he'd envisioned something poppier and tighter than the loose opacity of Ruby Vroom. I don't think he failed at getting what he wanted, though. Irresistible Bliss does have a few songs that call back to the debut's vibe of tap-dancing maniacally atop some rickety scaffolding, but for the most part, it's the clearest, most spacious, and hookiest of the band's three records. With that, let's delve into Irresistible Bliss and see what happens when we peel back its dense layers. Here's hoping it will be less gross than that trend of YouTube videos showing people getting bathing cap-sized dandruff flakes gingerly combed out of their heads. I'll have to take your word for it. I rarely go on YouTube except to watch music videos for this show. Bev accidentally stumbled upon this whole series of videos. It is <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> okay, let's get that out of our minds. So before we set off on our long, dark night of the soul coughing, we have a few brand new Patreon donors to thank this week. Joni, Chris, Gary, Andy, and James. You guys are the best, seriously. Thanks, guys. Anyone else out there with chump change to spare who would like <laughs> to support the ongoing production of Discord and Rhyme, you can sign up for a monthly donation at patreon.com slash discordpod. If you sign up at the $3 a month level, you'll get access to our exclusive donor feed of bonus episodes. Sometimes we talk about an album, and sometimes we break format and talk about subjects like our favorite songs featuring the Mellotron, or our favorite covers that surpass the originals. Our most recent episodes are about the soundtrack to the Muppet movie, and the albums Stance for Decibels by the DBs and Tim by the Replacements, and we've got more episodes on the way. If you have any questions or feedback about the show or just want to introduce yourself, we're on Twitter at DiscordPod, and you can also shoot us an email at discordpod at gmail.com. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, it would help us out if you left us a rating or a review. And if you're not on Apple, spread the word any way you can. We're a small, independent podcast, and word of mouth is honestly the primary way we draw new listeners into the fold. Please help the other music nerds find us. Okay, we're going to start off with a song that I assume is about Simon Le Bon. It is, right? <laughs> this is Super Bon Bon. If I stole somebody else's wave to fly up And if I roll push play on Irresistible Bliss, Super Bon Bon kicks the door open and drags you bodily inside the album's uniquely funny, spooky, chaotic, and dancing mandatory world. Steinberg's bass line is a thick, deep drilling rig, and I have no idea what Daily Antoni is sampling to make that squalling between the verses and in the chorus, but the arrangement fits together snugly. That's necessary to support Doty's all-time most aggressive vocal. 
When the chorus hits and he proceeds to shout rhymes in a cadence intentionally lifted from rapper Craig Mack. In fact, it inspired Mack to write an oblique takedown of Doty with his song Jock and My Style, which we'll hear here. These people try to fade me. Wait, sorry, that's not right. Here's the correct one. I was listening to the song while my wife and I were driving on the Ohio Turnpike last month and the let the man go through part came on right as we reached a toll booth and the gate raised to let us through. So it was pretty great. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that easy pass and soul coughing, you're missing out on some brand synergy. <laughs> Do it. So I, I've made fun of this song a few times on this show in the past, and I think some of you got the misimpression that I was mocking it. So let me be clear. I love this song. I think it's one of the best songs of the 90s. And it's, it's one of those convenient cases where a band's most famous song doubles as their quintessential song, because uh, this is like a showcase of what every single member of Soul Coughing brings to the band, like a, a lineup right there. Like you have Sebastian Steinberg's fat, upright bass notes meshing with Yuval Gabaya's snare hits and crash cymbals in a way that like it feels like a mechanical bouncy castle or something to me. And you have Mark Daly and Tony's samples furiously scribbling at the margins before just exploding into what sounds like a table saw during the chorus. And uh, across <laughs> over the course of this album, I have no idea what he's sampling, and I think he intended it that way. And both the lyrics and the delivery are Mike Doty at his peak, like the unconventional, unpredictable rhythm and just this stroke of genius of turning an ordinary phrase like take the elevator to the mezzanine into like this furious call to action that rolls off the tongue and gets you headbanging. It's it's genius. And despite all of Mike Doty's complaints about about the production process that Will outlined earlier, it all gels into this like cohesive beast of a song. I love it. It's it's honestly one of my favorite songs. Well, that was me that thought you were mocking it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 I don't I don't blame you. I did it in Dave Matthews voice yeah. back in the Dave Matthews episode. You did. I weirdly want to hear Dave Matthews cover Super Bon Bon now. Super Bon Bon, Super Bon Bon. <laughs> Take the elevator to the mezzanine, chump change, and it's all Super Bon. <laughs> okay. As I've said repeatedly about that episode, I was kind of drunk. <laughs> uh, getting into the true spirit of Dave Matthews. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, from the and I think you've done it at least one other time. And from those two times that you've sung the song on the podcast, shockingly, I did not recognize it. So I didn't <laughs> think I knew this until I turned on the album. And this was a total. Oh, I remember this kind of a moment because I definitely heard it on WKQX Chicago back in the 90s. Um, I don't think it was a huge hit, but definitely enough to where I remember it well. And that was a really fun surprise. I wasn't expecting those mysterious alt-rock hits from my teenage years. And this is, it's just ridiculously fun and catchy. I always appreciate a, a vocalist who is able to sell lyrics that are utter nonsense. And these are masterful, utter nonsense set to a crazy good beat. 
And that's one thing that I enjoy a whole lot about this whole album is how loud the bass and drums are throughout. And they're both good enough to deserve being that high in the mix. So yeah, this song is spectacular. It's great. This song is so great that it's almost to Soul Coughing's detriment. Yeah. Because one of the reasons I never got more into Soul Coughing than I did was because I love this song so much and I don't like any of their other songs as much. Because this is unusually aggressive for them, Mm -hmm. but it really works here. One of my favorite moments in this is just at the end of each musical phrase, when the bass goes, and you hear the drum just go, chock, chock, right after that. That's some good acapella upright bass right there, Phil. It really was. (laughs) Thank you. But this one's just absolutely fantastic. One more thing I'll say about it. So many years later... Mike Doty recorded an album of re-recordings of soul coughing songs, and it really does go to show how much uh, the other members of the band contributed, because the re-recording of Super Bon Bon on there, it's like the song is there, but a lot of the like interesting color that makes this recording so great is not. You must cut lean You gotta take the elevator to the mezzanine trunk Change and it's on Super bonbon, super bonbon, super bonbon Fat, fat, you must cut lean You gotta take the elevator to the mezzanine trunk Change and it's on Super bonbon, super bonbon, super bonbon And it really goes to show that even if Mike Doty was providing the songs the other members of Soul Coughing were making very significant contributions because if you subtract them out of this recording, it is considerably poorer for it. Also, apparently Howard Stern loves this song. Like, uh, I've never really listened to him, but apparently he'll just bring it up all the time. Ew, that makes me not like it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Uh, but I read I read a transcript of an interview he did with Mike Doty where he like cornered him about how similar the Ricky Martin song Shake Your Bon Bon is to this one. And it really is. I've heard that too, yeah. All right, next up. It's it's been a hot summer. I don't know about you, but I could go for some soft serve. Track two. song that I feel has an actual sense of place. It feels like an idealized urban summer, like the New York City of Spike Lee's Crooklyn or the Ramones' Rockaway Beach. (laughs) 
Something about that glistening guitar tremolo, the hollow sound coming out of Steinberg's bass, and Daly Antoni's rippling keyboard just sound to me like the New York I've always been told existed a few generations ago, with close-knit neighborhoods and kids running through the spray of open fire hydrants and such. Granted, Doty's lyrics quickly sprint from typical summer imagery like melting ice cream cones to presidential assassination attempts, which are traditionally a post-Labor Day endeavor. But whatever the hell he's singing about, Soft Serve chimes with a beauty that's unmatched in any other soul-coughing song. Yeah, Will, I I need you to take a deep breath and hear me when I tell you that this could easily be a Dave Matthews Band song. (laughs) Uh, Will has just walked out. (laughs) (coughs) He's coughing out his whole soul right there. And I have an illustration to back up this point. Rich, if you would, please. This illustration is not meant to say that the two specific songs sound particularly alike, but they have a, it's just a very similar vibe. That was from the song recently from 1993. And there are lots of other Dave Matthews band songs that would make my point pretty well, especially Stay from Before These Crowded Streets. And honestly, that is something that I thought a lot while listening to this. Like, damn, it's no wonder Dave Matthews was recommending soul coughing to me personally. Because the two bands share an awful lot of DNA. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of with you on that. I mean, like, not it's not like a hundred percent, but this album, for all of its like distinctive soul coughing identity, it has a lot of that like late '90s production feel. That uh, and as as Will said, the the producer also produced like a bunch of Sugar Ray albums, and I can definitely hear that Mm -hmm. here as well. Yeah. Well, and I actually didn't know that. And one of my first thoughts was this kind of sounds like a cross between Dave Matthews Band and Sugar Ray. <laughs> I hear the Sugar Ray more than Dave Matthews, but there is like a, yeah. a more than a little bit of Dave Matthews and Doty's delivery mm-hmm. sometimes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of the same vocal quirks between the two of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying is that Dave Matthews and Soul Coughing are the same thing, Will. <laughs> well, I mean, Dave Matthews really liked Mike Doty. Because after Soul Coughing broke up, um, Mike Doty didn't have a record label anymore. And Dave Matthews basically tracked him down and signed him to mm-hmm. his own vanity label. So Mike yep. Doty's solo records were on ATO Records. Phil, what do you think of Soft Serve? So Soft Serve took me a long time to like. And it's 100% due to the sequencing. Because Super Bon Bon is just such a great song that anything that comes after it sounds minor. And this just... It kind of would pull me out of the album because I wanted more stuff like Super Bon Bon and I wasn't going to get it. So when I started preparing for this episode, I took the step of beginning listening to this album at track two. Uh. So I would not have, you know, Super Bon Bon coming in and, you know, slapping me over the head. And when I was divorced from that expectation, I liked the song a lot more. It has like an easy charm to it that you don't hear in a lot of soul coughing songs. So once I got over the hump of the sequencing, it's a pretty solid little song. 
Yeah, I think the song is just great. Uh, like the, the title is a wonderful metaphor for the way you just kind of melt away on a lazy, sweltering day. Uh, and the keyboards put like pictures in my head of like the, the sun shining a lens flare into my eyes and the mercury rising to the top of the thermometer. It's it's really evocative. Like a lot of Mike Doty's lyrics are just free association, but he also knows how to set the scene really well when he wants to. And mm-hmm. this is one of those cases. So the website Soul Coughing Underground has a great track-by-track breakdown of this album by Mike Doty. And for this song, he apparently drew inspiration from a couple of contemporary hip-hop hits. So for the guitar part, he was trying to imitate the way the guitar kind of slithers around the accents in Dr. Dre's Nothing But a G Thing. Yeah, I can hear that. And the central melody is apparently inspired by the line, and I slowly came to see all the things that you are made of from Mary J. Blige's hit Real Love. Oh, that's exact. I was going to say, by inspired by, do you mean lifted from? Mary J. Blige is awesome, by the way. I was listening to her album, No More Drama, earlier today, and just it's just full of bangers, like top to bottom. And also, as for Real Love, Doty actually did an acoustic cover of that song on his solo album, Skittish. I've been searching for someone to satisfy my every need. Won't you be my inspiration? Be the real love that I need, yeah, real love. I'm searching for real love. Someone to set my heart free, real love. I'm searching for real love. Yeah, that's really good, too. So in his memoir, The Book of Drugs, which I'm sure is going to come up multiple times in this episode, Mike Doty characterized hip hop as, quote, huge rhythm shot through with surreal information. And that's the kind of sound he was aiming for with his songwriting and soul coughing. And Doty's approach here kind of reminds me of like, you know, Beck's approach to hip hop. Like it's he takes it just, you know, very straight faced and seriously. And I love it. Mm-hmm. OK, it's time for track three. White girl, white girl. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's how we get Amanda to turn her head. It's very respectful. <laughs> there was some similarity I couldn't quite nail down between Doty and Michael Stipe. I was recently talking with my friend Andrew about R.E.M.'s new adventures in hi-fi, and he referred to Michael Stipe's late career habit of falling into amelodic shrugging, as on How the West Was Won and Where It Got Us and Ebo the Letter, as Poetry Slam Mike. With the walk and the talk and the tick-tock clock with the rock and the roll the bridge, bridge. 
I thought that was pretty brilliant, but I think that might be where I hear the kinship between the two men. They can both be slapped with the label Poetry Slam Mike when their heads get too far stuck up their own myths. White Girl definitely falls into that category, with no melody whatsoever and no real point to make. Luckily, the music bails it out. Soulcoughing and its rhythm section in particular was always extremely impressive when it came to developing polyrhythms that leave the listener unsettled and wondering, did I hear that right? Goodbye in particular was apparently fond of getting the basic shape of the song together and then scrapping his drum part in favor of a counterintuitive new one that rubbed up against the song like a cheese grater, to Doty's undying annoyance. Songs like White Girl, or Eloso songs Fully Retractable and $300, take multiple listens just to unravel, which might sound like a huge pain, but I always enjoy the journey. I think the Bay Area references in this song are funny because they're the kind of references a New York music nerd would come up with. Like, uh, Market and Van Ness are two major arteries in San Francisco, but their their intersection doesn't really have any notable landmarks. It's just kind of a boring intersection, except for, like, a mediocre donut shop called the All-Star Cafe. And I hope we don't get any one-star reviews who are like, I love the All-Star Cafe. <laughs> You're more like a one-star cafe. <laughs> You're more likely to get Shrek references. Somebody. But, Phil, what do you think of this song? <laughs> the rhythm section is great, but there's no song here. Yeah, Mike Doty is incredibly annoying on this song in a way that he usually isn't. And I don't know, the rhythm section is really good, but this whole song just annoys me and I do not like it very much. OK, white girl. I mean, Amanda, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love how respectful you guys always are. <laughs> good God, this is annoying. Uh it, the whole album constantly swings between this is super annoying and I really like it and this is super annoying and I can't stand it at all. And this is firmly in column B because <laughs> there are times when their idiosyncrasies just get out of control and ruin everything. But you know what I noticed just now while we were listening to the clip is the drumming sounds a lot like that one sample from the drummers of Burundi that Def Leppard borrowed for Rocket. <laughs> and I think Joni Mitchell sampled it too. And I'm wondering if that is deliberate. White night, Stream City, Mad Music. Midnight, Street Magic, a crazy people. Yeah, I don't really care for this one either. I, I, I like Dodie when he's free associating to like interesting rhythms, but he mostly just shouts on this song. And if this yeah. were his one mode, I wouldn't mm -hmm. be into the band. Th though I will say that the song Screenwriters Blues from Ruby Vroom, he kind of does the same thing. And that's a much better song than this. But if you can dig underneath his vocals, I, I do really like the drum part by Yuval Gabay. Like, so to go back to They Might Be Giants, it, it reminds me of his guest spot on their song Token Back to Brooklyn. And funny tidbit, Token Back to Brooklyn is a hidden track on the album Factory Showroom, which is indexed before the first track, which is an annoying thing that bands used to do back in the 90s. Uh, so if you look at Yuval Gabay's credit for that album on Wikipedia, he's listed as drums on track negative one. That's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I still don't under really understand like what that what was going on when bands did that. Like what what is negative tracking? It was just a fun gimmick on the new format and they wanted to see what they could do, I guess. Okay. It's actually not compliant with the CD spec and a lot of modern CD players do not support it. Oh. 
I never had a CD player that could do it. I had a couple of albums where people told me that was a thing, but I never could actually hear it. Yeah, it was like songs were hiding in another dimension or something. Anyway, uh, we're talking about another album here. So let's move on to the next song, uh, which is Soundtrack to Mary. Easy places to get away to. first single from Irresistible Bliss, and it got the complete major label push, and I cannot for the life of me figure out why this song wasn't disqualified from the running when Dodie leads into the chorus with that off-key growling squawk. Down my spine, yeah! <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised this was the single when Super Bon Bon was right there. I, I, guess I know. I guess it's more conventional. I could see it being I the guess. second or third single, because, I mean, what mm. else are they going to put? Disseminated? Right. <laughs> like... But it definitely should have been after Super Bon Bon. Yeah. Although Super Bon Bon strikes me as sort of a fluky hit. Not not a song you would set out to write with the intention of going for radio ads. Yeah, right that's now. true. I guess when you're an A&R flunky with an album this weird on your hands, you've got to make some weird decisions. <laughs> uh, for his part, Dodie claims this song was his attempt to write a song in the style of indie rock band Low, which is not an influence I would have predicted, since Low... Until recently, we're long known for two things, pristinely beautiful harmonies and managing to somehow write songs whose BPM was a negative number. I pointed out on Twitter a few days ago that the band Low should have a song called Cracker. <laughs> and nobody appreciated it, so I'm just laying it out here for all of you people to enjoy. They should also have a song called Flow Rida. <laughs> Am I the only one who's hip with what the kids dig 10 years ago? I think so. I got it. <laughs> Amanda, what do you think of this one? It's good. Yeah. They've, they've controlled all the annoying things and <laughs> got everything just even, put a lid back even on Dodie's it. red fox impression I, you know what his voice doesn't bother me at all i just i think this song has a really nice melody uh it's another one that's it's 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 very visually evocative but not to any specific images mm -hmm. um so i don't really know what i'm talking about there but this is another song where i just keep thinking wow this sounds like dave matthews band <laughs> and the clip I have this time to illustrate this point is from Jimmy Thing from 1986. And listen to the bass line. 
Oh, yeah, I do hear it. Damn it. Yeah, Seawill, two bands, mm-hmm. exactly the same. QED. Yeah, and, and that's overstating the case, obviously, but there is enough similarity between the two bands that, Will, it's honestly, I, I'm not trying to troll you. It's honestly <laughs> a little bit confusing to me how you hate one and love the other to the degrees that you do. I like the weirdness that Soul Coughing employs, whereas mm-hmm. Dave Matthews, he's just got more of a, a jammy feel. Like, it's the same reason I don't like uh, a lot of Mike Doty's solo, solo stuff because mm. it's so plainly arranged. Yeah, that makes sense. The rhythm section and Mark DeLiantoni's bizarre coterie of samples, which can pull from like Seagulls to Tori Amos to whatever, mm-hmm. just lays this really interesting bed of sound on top of whatever Doty's got going on. Yeah, the mm-hmm. only Mike Doty album I've heard besides Skittish, which is an acoustic album, is is the EP Rockety Roll, which comes attached to mm-hmm. Skittish now. And that's kind of how I describe it. Like it's a the, the songs sound like soul coughing songs and they're fine, but I, I it's hard for me not to imagine like the other three band members just livening them up. Mm-hmm. Phil, what do you think of Soundtrack to Mary? I think it's a pretty solid song. It doesn't blow me away. I think it sounds quite a bit more commercial than Will does. I think this sounds like a slightly quirky mid-90s alternative rock song. I think it works. Yeah, I agree. I totally see how this would be released as a single. Not the first one, but yeah. Again, I'm not in love with it. I think it sounds like some solid mid-90s alternative rock. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I like this song, but I have surprisingly little to say about it. Uh, Like Phil said, it's a pretty standard mid-90s alternative rock song. So I'm just going to mention that the music video is really fun and was directed by John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. And that's the last time I'm going to draw lines between Soul Coughing and They Might Be Giants in this episode, I promise. I don't believe you. All right, let's move on to track five, Lazy Bones, a title that reminds me of the song Lazy Head and Sleepy Bones by They Might Be Giants. Damn it! I knew you were lying. I thought about bringing that up, too. (laughs) I can't help myself. I would probably name Lazy Bones as my favorite song on this album. It's a love song between a heroin addict and an alcoholic who cling to each other because their respective addictions complement, by which I mean enable, each other. Drugs were a recurring motif slash obstacle in Doty's life and music for a long, long time, to the point that he titled his 2012 memoir, The Book of Drugs. 
It's a topic that clearly weighs heavy on his heart in Lazy Bones, because he's a smart guy who knows how self-destructive the lifestyle of the addict can be, but it's also a lifestyle it's easy to convince yourself you can't live without. I feel like Lazy Bones is an acknowledgement of that without actually acknowledging it. Furthermore, I feel like Doty puts some of his most impressive lyrical painting into this song, with the narrator pleading, If I could stay here under your idle caress and not exit to the world and phoniness and people, before simply drifting off beneath a cloak of numbing chemicals. I think this song is a good excuse to talk about Doty's guitar playing a little bit, because as much as he willfully places himself front and center as a vocalist, mm -hmm. a lyricist, and a songwriter, I like how as a guitarist he knows when to stay out of the way and just use his guitar to texture the songs. Because, like, on this song, all he does is play a really simple two-note drone that kind of just serves as a platform for the other performers. And that's all he really needs to do. Mm -hmm. Like, it makes the song feel like this big, expansive canvas for the rest of the band, and they fill it out just beautifully. Uh, and the effect specifically reminds me of the song It's Different for Girls by Joe Jackson, which uses a very similar two-note drone. And it's by no means the only song to do that kind of thing, but like Lazy Bones, I think it's a really good example of a song that pulls it off successfully. What that guitar reminded me of was Going to California by Led Zeppelin. The intro sounds just like it, right down to the breath you can hear just a few notes in, and I, I liked that detail a lot. Um, and the song itself is really good for all the reasons you guys said, but the one element of it that I don't like is this is, I think, the only time on the album where the bass actually really gets on my nerves. It's a little bit too loud for my taste. This is the kind of mix that's meant to be played by some dipshit teenager driving through your neighborhood with a subwoofer in his trunk. So that part, I think, detracts from it. But on the whole, yeah, Lazy Bones is really, really good. Speaking of Led Zeppelin, in the Book of Drugs, uh, Mike Doty says that the band could have been as big as Led Zeppelin if the other band members had gotten out of the way and just let him do everything. So, Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. Yeah, if you, if you read that book, you're in for a lot of like ego self-stroking and a lot of just, you know, tales about his sexual prowess, which come out of nowhere. So listeners, if you end up reading this book, just be warned about that. Yeah, I think I'm good. <laughs> so despite the fact that you know super bon bon is obviously my favorite song on this album generally speaking the quieter and more atmospheric numbers on this album are i think where it really shines and so this is one of my favorite songs on this album and i think one of the best soul coughing songs i've heard the song has like a real unsettling menace to it, which I think is greatly enhanced by the keyboards or samples, which have an almost Mellotron-ish or ARP-ish sound to them. I'm not sure exactly what they are, but they sound great. And I love you know, the languid way that Do that uh, Dodie sings the chorus, and I love the big crescendo at the end of the song. Mm. But it's a wonderful, understated song that just really works. Okay, it is time for track six, which is four out of five. Because seven, eight, nine. Yeah. I like Eugene Merman's version of that joke. <laughs> Why is six afraid of seven? 
Cause seven ate a bunch of PCP and went ape shit. <laughs> Eugene Merman is great. slinky caught in the gears of a merry-go-round i i adore it but i won't waste our time excavating this one <laughs> it's just silly yeah i have to confess some of these songs fired off the synapses in my brain a lot less than other ones did and this song is one of them uh, there's kind of a thin line in Doty's lyricism between brilliant wordplay and really crappy slam poetry and this is the case where the balance mostly tips toward the latter the, though I, I think it's well, the thing you said earlier about how White Girl and Four Out of Five were the only like kind of unsullied songs on the album, uh, I, I found that interesting because they're pretty easily my two least favorite songs on the album. <laughs> so most of what I have to say about this album is being annoyed about Family Guy, because I wrote a joke about this song, so I had it written, I had it ready to deliver like three days ago. <laughs> that uh, this song is like Schoolhouse Rock. But it doesn't rock, so it's really just more like school. I thought that was a funny joke. And then literally the next day, Family Guy released a video about the COVID vaccination, and they make that exact joke. Oh, no. Really? Yes, they made the exact joke that I wrote the day after I wrote it. That is suspicious. They bugged your house. Anyway, it's not a very good song. <laughs> yeah, so Amanda, based on our pre-show discussion, you have more to say about this song than the three of us combined, so have at it. Yeah, I do have a lot to say, but it's a little bit batshit, so stick with me. Do we know whether Mike Doty is a particular fan of Danny Kay? Uh, I've never heard him mention okay. Danny fucking Kay. he did have the hap hap happiest christmas though yeah (laughs) he he sure did the reason i ask is because what the song immediately reminded me of is danny Kaye's song inchworm from the movie hans christian anderson where he plays the title character in 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 the song a group of school children are singing their lesson as the backing track to an instructional song that danny Kaye sings about an inchworm slash the meaning of life um, I saw the movie. I remember the song from the movie, and he also performed it on the Muppet Show, uh, which is the illustrative clip I have for you here. like our listeners to send in as many songs as they can think of that are just singers adding up numbers i would love to hear that <laughs> I, in fact i would love to make a playlist of that 
That would be fun. Added up by the violent films does not count. Sadly, no. So, yeah, Hans Christian Andersen is a good movie. That's a really lovely little song. And while I was researching it, I was very surprised to learn that it's been covered by a million billion artists, including Paul McCartney and John Coltrane. Really? And was a major inspiration for David Bowie's song, Ashes to Ashes. And I didn't know any of that. I just remember the song from when I watched the movie with my grandma when I was 10. But the thing is that two and two are four bit is such an earworm that I've only seen the movie once, but that gets stuck in my head regularly. An so, ear inchworm. Exactly. <laughs> two and two is four. So when I heard four out of five, that was what I thought of immediately. And it's been so surprisingly influential that I think it's possible that he maybe had that in mind. Um, but the songs have nothing in common aside from math. It's I could sort of vaguely hear the similarity because it's such a it is a hauntingly strange melody that you just it's played. A very strange melody, and it makes a really really cool counterpoint. Yeah. To the fairly pedestrian melody of the actual lyrics about the inchworm, it's it's honestly it's a weird and amazing little song, and I'll provide a link to it in our show notes because yeah, everybody like should see that scene from the movie. It's very cool. Wow, I was expecting the discussion of this song to last 30 seconds. I, I love this podcast. <laughs> so let's go on to track seven. This is Paint. was a nickname he gave his girlfriend at the time. I do not know where the nickname came from, but I can infer that Dodie was going out with a horse. <laughs> Regardless of her species, it seems rather uncharitable that this song's chorus is, I know you're dumb as paint. As for the rest of the song, it's literally nonsense. Dodie splutters a bunch of fake words and disconnected phonemes like a much goofier cousin of Talking Heads' Ezimbra. Paint grew from a full band jam rather than Dodie showing up with a song to riff off of, and you can kind of tell that there's no real center. Even 4 out of 5 felt like it was a loopy spirograph drawing as opposed to an ugly formless scrawl. I don't dislike Paint, but it makes me happy that the band didn't like each other enough to jam for fun more often. So in the last song, I talked about how Dodie's lyrics walk a thin line between brilliant wordplay and crappy slam poetry. And to speak more broadly, sometimes yeah. soul coughing really walks the line between amazing music and really awful experimental art music. Now, now that's not a diss on paint. 
specifically. The song isn't bad. I don't mind it at all. Uh, but it's definitely the song on here that most brings to mind their roots in New York's experimental art scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as, as Will mentioned, before coalescing as a band, the various members of Soul Coughing all participated at various points in a project by John Zorn called Cobra which was a piece of collaborative improvisational performance art where the musicians would follow like a set of cues notated on cards held by a group member designated as the prompter. And the piece would resultantly change dramatically between performances. And there are a couple of studio recordings from the eighties, as well as a 1992 live album recorded at the knitting factory in New York, featuring members of soul coughing. And well, I'll just let you hear it for yourself. Well, that sure sounds like John Zorn. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, this track has Dodie in it and Jeff Buckley, who was part of the same scene as him uh, for a little while. Wait, did you just say Jeff Buckley? Yes, Jeff Buckley. The shockingly boring Jeff Buckley? (laughs) That's the one. Mm -hmm. Wow. I did not see that coming. Yeah, there's some choice uh, anecdotes about him in the Book of Drugs, which you'll never read. So, And and I left out the part of this track where a guy shrieks at the top of his lungs at regular intervals. So uh, I spared you guys there. But so what I'm saying is Soul Coffin gives in to some musical excesses over the course of their albums, but it could have been so much worse. (laughs) (laughs) Amanda, what do you think of this one? It is very possible that I have gone entirely around the bend. But the intro to this song reminds me a lot of Lark's Tongues and Aspic. Oh. I was expecting you to say Ants Marching. <laughs> well, that too. Part one, part two, part three. Uh, there are four Lark's Tongues and Aspics. I know. <laughs> yeah, specifically part one. I'm thinking of uh, there's all those clanging noises and then that big old riff. Um, and the way the riff kicks in just really reminds me. Uh, The way it works in paint, it reminds me a lot of Lark's Tongues. But as I said before, that might just be me. Uh, I I do like this a lot. Uh, I really enjoy whatever squealy noise the keyboard is making back there. It's it's all very monotonous and at least somewhat designed to get on your nerves, but in a way that really works for me. I enjoy this a lot, a, a lot more than I would have thought. I was reading some contemporary reviews of this album, and I think a lot of critics did not really know what to make of it. Like, I saw a review that I don't know if they were thinking of this song or what they were thinking of, but they compared this band to White Zombie. (laughs) White Zombie. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, I guess it goes to show, like, contemporary critics had no idea what to do with music (laughs) like this, I guess. As for this song, like, it's fine enough while it's playing and it's under three minutes and I don't particularly (laughs) care about it. But did anyone ever compare them to Jethro Tull? Not to the best of my knowledge. (laughs) Okay, it's time for track eight. This is Disseminated. (laughs) 
another nonsense song, but so much shinier. Like Ruby Vroom's Bust to Beelzebub, Disseminated is built around a sample of an old Raymond Scott cartoon score. This time it's a delightful slice of toddling called The Penguin. If I didn't know the name of that track, I would have pictured Pingu, Switzerland's favorite (laughs) incontinent claymation penguin. (laughs) There's not much to get out of the lyrics here in general. Call up bop and I'm bunting stomach. Coco mop, I stop nothing plummet. Thud on top, I ate the chocodile. Consists of a bunch of words that are fun to sing all in a row, and sometimes that's all you need. That sounds like his version of I I shot the albatross from Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. (laughs) Kind of, it does. (laughs) That said, this song was used in a 2006 commercial for Ford, which is amusing because Disseminated's opening lines are, The goat chewed up once a tin can. The goat shat out was a Ford sedan. (laughs) And with that, Ford managed to top even McDonald's when it comes to obliviously licensing songs for their commercials, which are an uproariously bad fit lyrically. In McDonald's case, they used the Shin's new slang in a 2002 ad in spite of lines like, there's dirt in your fries, fries. and all the bakers at dawn, may they all cut their thumbs and bleed into the buns. Till they melt away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amanda, uh, what say you on this song? Oh, this is fun. I really, really like that sample a lot. I didn't know what it was from, but I just really like that Glenn Miller style muted trumpet. Mm Mm-hmm. And the, the clarinet doing whatever it is they're doing. I like big band jazz. I like music that references it, even if it's borrowed from a cartoon. And this is a song that could very easily have just been grating and obnoxious, but the arrangement is so catchy and so well-performed that it's just a really fun earworm instead. It comes perilously close to being a novelty song, but it never gets there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is a great song. I really like this one. I love the goofy sample. It's got a great groove. Like, you can really hear the band members shining on this. The lyrics are nonsense, but they're fun. And it's such a wildly uncommercial song to slam in the middle of, like, a major label 90s rock record. Yeah. 
Like, I love that this is on here. Well, what I love about the sample on this song is that it's it's the only time on the album that Mark, Mark Daly and Tony bases, like, the entire song uh, on a big central sample from a reasonably recognizable source. Because uh, for the rest of the album, his work is a lot more subtle. Like, as I put it during Super Bon Bon, he kind of scribbles at the margins. Mm-hmm. And it makes it really effective by contrast when it's, like, the one time on the album when he busts out a big, loud sample like he does here. And as, uh, and as Will said, he does the same thing with a Raymond Scott sample on Ruby Vroom on the song Bust to Beelzebub. Uh, But in that case, the sample is Powerhouse, which is the Raymond Scott song everybody knows from Looney Tunes. Uh, So it feels a lot more obvious and cartoony. Get onto the bus That's gonna take you back to Beelzebub And uh, I like Busted Beelzebub a lot, but, uh, you know, Phil said that Disseminated Veer is kind of close to being a novelty song. And I feel that way, like double about about that song. Mm-hmm. OK, let's charge forth on this album. Track nine is Collapse. insisted that this song is not about the 1995 murder of Charlie Minor, a promoter for A&M Records who was shot to death by an on-again, off-again lover. Doty's version doesn't provide much of a narrative, frankly, especially if you stand it up against the simmering, rumbling murder mystery City of Motors from Ruby Vroom. Still an interesting, energetic song, though, between Daly Antoni's pippity-poppity video game noises and the most attention-grabbing guitar work Doty presents on the whole album, except for the shimmering tremolo of soft serve. This one's never really jumped out at me, but the, the surf guitar and the drum and bass licks and the, and the really repetitive chorus, they, it, it make the, it, they make the song kind of feel like a next time on Soul Coughing preview of their next album, <laughs> El Oso. Like that album is full of songs like this one, but better. So if any listeners aren't into this song, but enjoy the overall sound, I I advise them to check that album out. It's really, really good. Amanda, what do you think of this one? Hey, guess what? This sounds like Dave Matthews Band. Now, in Soul Coughing's defense, that is from Everyday, which came out in 2001. Uh, but I'm, I'm just beating a dead horse here. These two bands sound a lot alike. <laughs> Phil, do you have a Dave Matthews comparison this time? I don't. I do you did have a Family sp- Guy joke? No Family Guy <laughs> joke. I did spend quite a while trying to come up with a Pop Pop in the Attic reference, but I couldn't come up <laughs> with one. 
And the mere fact that I couldn't come up with one suggests that I'm not ready. <laughs> anyway, I really like this song. I love the drums. I love the way the samples and keyboards kind of play and give it this really ominous feeling. I think Dodie's lyrics, I don't know much about the lyrics on this one. They don't mean much. Uh, but he really gets into a really catchy vocal cadence. I mean, it's a minor song, but I just really like it. Okay, track 10 is called Sleepless. I got the will to drive myself 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 sleepless. So much time is example of the brutal but fruitful tug-of-war that famously existed between Dodie and his bandmates on this song. You know those pin art desk toys that contain a rectangle full of dull pins that you can push your hand or your face against? Oh, yeah. Or, yes, other things. Thank you, Cynthia Plastercaster. And the pins you touched <laughs> will continue sticking forward from the rest, forming a somewhat nifty relief sculpture? I think that's how Dodie envisioned soul coughing. He'd press the pin art toy against his face while his bandmates would produce the untouched pins who delineate the song's borders and whose sole function was to act as a flat plane to contrast the picture Dodie made. This is a long-winded way of saying Dodie wanted the band to get out of his way and then construct their parts around what he'd written. What made Soul Coughing so compelling, though, is that the songs almost always sounded like they'd been built from the ground up. Even though Dodie would bring in skeletal ideas for songs, Goodbye Steinberg and Daly Antoni viewed them as a jumping-off point to explore the most interesting song structures they could find. Doty was still able to hack back these topiaries so he never got lost in the mix, but to suggest his three bandmates were glorified session musicians is absolutely ludicrous. For comparison, here's a snippet of Sleepless as recorded by Doty himself on that crowdfunded album of soul coughing songs that Phil mentioned that he released in 2013. Drive myself sleepless, I got the will to drive myself sleepless. I got the will to drive myself sleepless, I got the will to drive myself sleepless. So much time is cashed. So much smoke is wasted. 
I have this album because I paid literally two dollars for it. <laughs> and I feel like I might have paid too much. Dodie said that the songs on that crowdfunded album were how he originally wanted them to sound before his bandmates, you know, offered input the dictators. <laughs> but you may notice that there is absolutely nothing of interest going on in the solo version. A flat-footed drum machine, a microcorg playing one synth vibraphone note per measure, and absolutely no dynamic shifts in the vocals or the arrangement. It's the sound of an air hockey puck sluggishly making its way across a table. The Irresistible Blish version, though, creates a wholly realized atmosphere, beginning with Steinberg tapping out a rhythm on the body of his bull fiddle, and goodbye clacking away on a drum rim, rattling like a subway car through an abandoned station. Doty's voice is stripped of any sort of bass, a hole which Daley Antoni fills with low-frequency creaks that leave you unsettled, even if they're not something you consciously noted. Then, two minutes in, once you've been properly lulled, Gabai's snare unexpectedly bursts in like a punji steak, and the whole song takes off. It's a glorious bit of interplay. Yeah, some of the funniest parts of the Book of Drugs are like Mike Doty exploding with rage that Yval Gabai just isn't able to play the exact drum part that he envisions in his head. He sounds fun. Or that Gabai gets bored and tries something new. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, it always ends up sounding cooler as far as I can tell. Yeah. But yeah, I think the production on this one is cool, like the way it kind of gradually builds in density and how Doty starts out at a lower volume, kind of pan toward the left channel. And then uh, mm -hmm. when the second chorus shows up, he sharpens and jumps to the center of the mix. And yep. I, I don't know, like I, I know that like everything else about Soul Coughing, Doty views the final mix of this album as an unsalvageable travesty. But I, I think this is a really well produced album in general. I think it sounds really good. Like, I, yeah, it does. Yeah. And I know the feeling of listening to your own work and only being able to hear the mistakes because I edit this podcast and that's how I feel about every word that I say uh, but I, I honestly feel that this record has a really crisp cohesive sound considering all the interpersonal drama behind it and again maybe all that's in Dodie's head well I'd imagine it's, it's probably a somewhat similar situation so when I've been reading about soul coughing getting ready for this episode I kind of got the impression that it's very similar to the situation with Robbie Robertson and the band where oh. Robbie oh, Robertson yeah. was writing the majority of the material but the other members of the band were clearly fleshing it out and making it interesting. And it drove Robbie mm -hmm. Robertson insane. <laughs> like, and then Robbie Robertson started putting out solo albums and who cares about any of them? <laughs> and then, you know, the other members of the band put out albums without Robbie Robertson and they sound good, but there's no songs. And yeah, I, I think it's a very similar situation when you have a guy who, you know, has very good ideas, but really wants to impose everything, even when there's talented collaborators with him. The difference is that Soul Coughing don't have a like a Scorsese directed documentary <laughs> where Mike Doty gets to talk about how he's the most important and genius member of the band. Right. <laughs> and then sing into a dead microphone. <laughs> as for Sleepless itself, like you remember back on on Lazy Bones when I said this album's at its best when it's slow and atmospheric. Yep, this is another really, really great one. Like, I love, like, the driving repetitive, I've got the will to drive myself sleepless. The little horn samples that pop up are just wonderfully kind of creepy and complement things so well. And Dodie's vocals have a real menacing edge here, which works really well against the really spare music. I wish the band did yeah. more stuff like this. Amanda? Well, this does not sound like Dave Matthews' band. Right. <laughs> I'm glad you guys had so much to say about it because I've just found this one really boring and kind of annoying, but you've you've all pointed out enough detail about it that I'm kind of reevaluating. 
So I'll probably come back to this one later and see if I can hear what you hear. We'll, we'll post in errata once this show goes up. All right, we have reached the penultimate track of Irresistible Bliss. This is The Idiot Kings, track 11. breezy little number, but there's not a whole lot to it. So we may as well use this opportunity to discuss one of Doty's invented words, the gangadank. This refers to a specific type of funk-derived rhythm he often resorts to when writing on his guitar. Is Chicago is not Chicago was the introduction to this rhythm for most fans, but we already listened to a clip of that one, so here's another example from Ruby Vroom, Moon Sammy. The Gangadank is a little buried toward the background of the Idiot Kings, but it is in there, so you're allowed to mark your soul coughing bingo card accordingly. This is another one of those songs that kind of sounds a lot more like just a normal alternative rock song. I like the bass in it, but I never really remember the melody. Like, I've listened to this album so many times getting ready for this podcast, and <laughs> I never remember how this one went until it starts again. Yeah, same here. And then I go, oh yeah, it's this one. And it's fine, but it's not more than fine. It's fine, fine, fine. Exactly. <laughs> I got one hand in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, in that track-by-track run-through of this album, uh, Dirty talks about being irate when Hand in My Pocket by Alanis Morissette came out like uh, around the time he was recording this album, and like the, it yeah. had basically the same hook. I get the feeling he was irate a lot. And what it all comes down to Uh, Amanda, what do you think of this one? It's a perfectly fine, straightforward 90s alternative rock song. And I like it. I think it's good enough. <laughs> that's that's funny. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. I'm surprised yeah? it wasn't a single, to be honest. Like, like maybe it would have been if Hand in My Pocket didn't exist. But if you that's ask... That's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. if you ask me, the, the fine, fine, fine is all the songs have in common. They're pretty musically distinct otherwise. Yeah. Uh, though the song it kind of brings to mind for me... Well, so I, I don't know whether Daily Antoni's sample in the chorus is a horn section, uh, but it reminds me of like the piles of layered brass in the chorus of uh, Skilo's hit single, I Wish, uh, which was on the radio a lot around the time Irresistible Bliss was being produced. I wish I was a little bit taller. I 
I had not made that connection at all, but you're, you're totally right. I love oh. that song. Yeah, when I lived in Ann Arbor, the hip-hop station outside of Detroit played that song all the time. And the other reason I'm surprised this one wasn't a single is because it feels like the most traditionally structured song on the album to me. Like it has a yeah. recognizable beginning, middle and end to the whole production that you don't really get uh, on the rest of the songs on the album. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if I were a record exec back in the mid 90s, I would have tapped this one. You know, I think that's maybe why I don't like it as much. It's just it everything else on the album is so different from the norm. This sounds just way too conformist <laughs> that's a dumb yeah. thing dumb way to put it it's just it's too normal it doesn't quite fit i think once again like disseminated the the contrast is what makes it jump out for me like if there were mm. even more than one song on the album that sounded like this it would uh, it would kind of be a bummer but it, this being the only kind of normal song i really like it that's mm-hmm. a good point okay well i got a question for you is you got a dog i do got a dog she's sitting in her crate pouting track 12 is how many cans the third of the Insomniac Noir trilogy on this album, Lazy Bones, Sleepless, and How Many Cans. The song's similarities don't extend to sharing the same melody or beat, the way the feelies allowed snippets of a single song to swim unencumbered throughout their album Crazy Rhythms. But the songs on Irresistible Bliss are of a piece with one another. Nevertheless, I wish the track list on the album went Disseminated, Sleepless, Collapse, The Idiot Kings, and How Many Cans because I think sticking How Many Cans so close to Sleepless robs this song of its own streaky neon sign reflected in an oil-slick grandeur and identity. Amanda, how about you? I don't quite know what to make of it, and it doesn't appeal to me. Is you got a dog? I I do got a dog. I is got a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Phil, how about you? I really like this one. I like how they close the album with this kind of weird little song instead of something like bigger mm-hmm. i love like how kind of weirdly unclassifiable it is it's just a kind of quiet jazzy bass line you get some like weird screechy samples 
some of Mike Doty's most abstract lyrics here. Mm-hmm. Not nonsensical, but strange. And I think it really works as an album closer. I dig this one. Yeah, I was thinking of this specifically as an album closer because this is an odd way to end the album, like not with a bang, but with a question mark. And I don't mean the question mark at the end of the title. I mean, just the song itself. Like, I actually find it kind of unsettling that this is what they chose to put at the end. Uh, and, and it got me thinking about albums that like don't end with a grand finale or a coda, an epic, a denouement, uh, or even something like gloriously weird, like XTC would do on songs like Train Running Low and Soul Cold. Just, just something casual, ordinary, but kind of off uh, in an uncanny way that leaves you going, what? <laughs> and I did some thinking and it turned out that most of the album closures I could think of that feel like that are by Ween, uh, like Puffy Cloud and Don't Sh Where You Eat. Uh, but another one I thought of was Throwback the Little Ones from Steely Dan's Katie Lied, which is this strange offbeat song that like uses fish as a metaphor for how people cut their social relations out of their lives. Yeah, but listeners, if you understand what I'm talking about and want to throw in like any examples of your own, just add us on Twitter at Discord Pod or email discordpod at gmail.com. I, we love having conversations like that with you. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly be interested to hear what yeah. people uh, can find that parallels this particular mood of... Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost suggests to me like somebody in a trench coat walking away with a a smoking silencer on their gun (laughs) just like a like a comic book panel okay so that brings us to the end of irresistible bliss uh well what are your concluding thoughts on this album and soul coughing in general to close up the the book on soul coughing they went on to release one more addictively puzzling album el oso and then Dodie quit looking back in all the anger Steinberg went on to cultivate a hugely impressive resume as the go-to bassist for pop geniuses like Fiona Apple, Neil Finn, David Byrne, and Phoebe Bridgers. He also reteamed with Goodbye for the latter's drum and bass project UV Ray, who played live around Manhattan a lot in the early 2000s, but released only the song Let the Drums Roll for wider posterity. Tony has done a lot of film score work, and in 1999, he released a solo album called Horse Tricks on John Zorn's label. Sounding by turns like The Boredoms, Finez, Eugene Chadbourne, Muffled Old Vaudeville Recordings, and Mark Mothersbaugh's non-Devo work, Horse Tricks is very smart and occasionally listenable. found a niche as a solo artist. During the Irresistible Bliss sessions, a friend took him to see a concert by two acts Doty was unfamiliar with, The Magnetic Fields opening for Elliot Smith. 
The simplicity, wit, and honesty of Smith and the magnetic field Stephen Merritt moved Odie to write and record a stripped-down solo album. Quote-unquote produced by Kramer of Shimmy Disc Records and Bongwater, the album is a lonely, echoey thing of beauty named Skittish, and it was shelved until soul coughing dissolved. At that point, Doty decided to press up some copies of Skittish himself, toss them and his guitar into a car, and go on tour. It was successful enough, apparently, that he's popped his head up every two years and released a new one, though the two-disc set containing Skittish, the 2003 Rockety Roll EP, and some bonus tunes on, yes, Dave Matthews' ATO label, is really all you need from a solo career. And then, as we mentioned several times in 2012, Doty wrote what is possibly the most bitter rock memoir ever published. Entitled The Book of Drugs, it's a self-serious, frequently gross screed about how damaged he was by his stint in soul coughing, and how much he despises Steinberg, Daly Antoni, and Goodbye. He refuses to call any of his bandmates by name throughout the book, instead referring to them as the drummer, etc. <laughs> he goes into great detail about his drug consumption and, as Rich mentioned, his sexual conquests. At one point, he mows down roughly 30 women in a drive-by objectification during a weird, weird, weird passage in which he lists some of the women he slept with at Soul Coughing's peak popularity. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of reading like a sci-fi novel from the 70s or something where there will where just be like four or five pages describing the sex act and all, my eyes will just glaze over and fast forward until I find like the, the next readable <laughs> paragraph. Yeah, it is. It's very much like that. What a charmer. Yeah, but he holds by far the most disdain for soul-coughing fans. That's where the joke for this episode's teaser came from. Dodie explicitly writes, When someone says, I like soul-coughing, I hear f*** you. The Book of Drugs slides along on an undercurrent of, Surely no one could continue to enjoy that music once they know the toll it exacted upon me. Or at least they will realize their fondness for that band was born of immature musical tastes. It doesn't work that way. I simply feel bad that those years were so unhappy for the band's frontman that they've led him to disown a phenomenal body of work. Yeah, I will say that the Book of Drugs is worth reading. Just just know what you're in for if you choose to pick it up. Yeah. There is uh, an interesting discussion of the idea of an artist being so disdainful of their fans in a Nick Hornby book called Juliet Naked that was also made into a movie with Chris O'Dowd and Rose Byrne. The book and the movie are both really good. But at one point, um, one of the characters has occasion to meet one of his musical idols who's been retired for some time, and he just gushes about how much this particular album meant to him. And the artist is a total jerk about it, saying, oh, that was a long time ago. That was really stupid. I can't believe people still like that. And the fan is rightfully very offended and upset at this and says, hey, look, you know, this this is deeply personal and means a lot to me. You know, you clearly have moved on, but there's no call to be so mean about it. And Ooh. it's actually it, it's a very moving scene in both the book and the movie. And I think... That's maybe a lesson Mike Doty could stand to learn. Sounds like it. So, Will, do you have any other albums to recommend, whether by Soul Coughing, the members of Soul Coughing, or just stuff that sounds like Soul Coughing? <laughs> I definitely think if you like this one, you should check out El Oso, Soul Coughing's final album. It might be their best one by a hair. It's certainly the most eclectic, adding elements of drum and bass electronica to their sound, as well as an overall feeling that the band was constantly trying to see how much weight each song could take before tearing apart like a wet paper towel. 
It's still plenty catchy, but it gives the listener a lot to occupy your brain with while you're bouncing joyously around the room to it. Coughing to recommend, so I'm going to focus specifically on Sebastian Steinberg. So, as Will mentioned, he's become a close collaborator with Fiona Apple, and he showed up on her albums The Idler Wheel and Fetch the Bolt Cutters, as well as the original mix of her 2005 album Extraordinary Machine, but though the one you can get commercially doesn't have him. And he played a particularly active role in the production of Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which listeners might recall is one of the most critically acclaimed albums in recent memory. It received the coveted 10 rating from Pitchfork, which means it's just as good as their patron saint, Kanye West. Fiona Apple even directly name drops Steinberg on the song Shemeika, which I'm going to clip. Tony told me he described me as pissed off, funny and warm. Sebastian said I'm a good man and a stone. Back then I didn't know what potential meant And Shumiko wasn't gentle and she wasn't my friend But she got through to me and I'll never see her again She got through to me and I'll never see her again I'm pissed off, funny and warm I'm a good man in the storm And when the fall is torrential, I'll recall Shumiko said I had potential Shumiko said I had potential Shamika said I had potential. Shamika said I had potential. And if you're a fan of soul coughing and somehow don't know the album The Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest, uh, check it out as soon as possible. There's a lot of upright bass throughout the album, both sampled from classic jazz records and played live. And Doty has outright said that it was an enormous influence on soul coughing sound. It's a total classic of the hip hop genre and everyone should hear it. anything to recommend so again there's not a lot that sounds like soul coughing but a similar major label record from a weird band from around the era which is not a perfect record but i think might have some stuff that's enjoyable if you like this would be the album electric larry land by the butthole surfers (laughs) where they were starting to get a little bit more into trip hop sounds and Doing a lot of stuff that kind of reminds me of what Mike Doty is doing here. Again, it's not a perfect record, and there's a few pretty iffy songs on there, but I think if you like this, you'll find stuff you like there, too. She played for the angels. I 
Amanda, you got anything to recommend? I think if you like this, you will find stuff you like on various Dave Matthews Band albums. What would you say? (laughs) (laughs) Shut it down. (laughs) Let's shut it down. So, next album on Discord and Rhyme. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. So, Amanda and I are going to be teaming up to talk about the album Dead Man's Party by Oingo Boingo. And we're going to be joined by a returning guest, Libby Cudmore. Who will leave her body and soul at the door. Who could ask for more? Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Irresistible Bliss and other albums by Soul Coughing at your local record store. And you can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. If you'd like to support Mike Doty directly, he has a Patreon at patreon.com slash Doty. And if you sign up, you get a new song every week. We made fun of him a lot this episode, so I wanted to throw him a bone. If you visit our website, discordpod.com, you can find a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates. Editing is by me, Rich Bunnell, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. Thank you.